Why don't you take your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. We have here one last passage before we get to the monumental Sermon on the Mount. And this final passage in Matthew 4 gives us a preview of things to come in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's been many years since I think we actually went to a movie in the theaters. Can't remember the last time, but I, growing up, I always loved the previews. Some people show up late on purpose to skip the previews. I was the opposite. I loved a good preview. This passage in Matthew 4, it's a very good preview. We've just seen the beginning of Christ's messianic ministry. Fast forwarding about a year now, we're, we're seeing the beginning of his Galilean ministry. He's relocated his headquarters to Capernaum. It's on the Sea of Galilee. He's called a few disciples to follow him, that he might train them to become fishers of men. And together, these disciples will follow Jesus around the Sea of Galilee, the region of Galilee, spreading the good news of the kingdom. We're going to witness much of that ministry in Matthew's gospel to come. We get to hear Jesus teach and preach. We get to watch him heal and deliver. But before we get to all those specific incidents, Matthew just gives us one overall summary that we can see the big picture of the Messiah's ministry. It's just three verses right before the Sermon on the Mount. But they're very helpful in telling us what's going to come in the rest of this gospel. So that's our passage for today. Let's just read this and and watch this little preview of the Messiah's ministry. Matthew 3, 23 through 25. I'm sorry, Matthew 4, 23 through 25. You can follow as I read. It says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill. Those suffering with various diseases and pains. Demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics. And he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea. And from beyond the Jordan. Just a preview. Now, thankfully, this is not like one of those previews that spoils the whole movie. You all know what I'm talking about. It takes away all surprise. You watch the preview of a movie that looks pretty good, and it, it tells you the whole plot and even the ending of the movie. And just for the sake of illustration, I don't know if you remember the old movie Castaway. It's 20 years old now. But Tom Hanks' character, he's in a relationship. He's bound to be married. But his plane crashes in the Pacific, and he's stranded on a desert island. But he survives. And he learns to, to live. He makes fire. He builds a shelter. But after many years alone, he, he builds a raft just to brave the open ocean, ho- hoping for rescue. And he's saved. He's brought back to civilization. And he's rescued many years later, only to find that the woman he was with has since married and has a child. So he has to say goodbye to her all over again. But he finds closure with the movie ending with him standing on a crossroads in life. That's the whole movie. That's the plot of the movie. And you get every single part of that in the preview. Now go back on YouTube and watch the old preview. The last scene of the preview is the last scene of the movie. It's just terrible. (laughs) Thankfully, though, Matthew's preview is not like that. He saves the huge plot twist of the crucifixion for later. If if you're not a Christian, you're just reading this this text, you would not know yet that this Savior, this long-promised Messiah is going to wind up on a cross. He also saves the resurrection for later. There's a lot more to come when it, 
when it comes to the Messiah's ministry than is listed in this passage. No mention is made here of the rejection of the Messiah or all the opposition he's going to receive. We just have the Messiah's power on display and his popularity among the people for now. But what makes this sneak preview extra special is it's really like a preview within a preview. This text gives us a preview of the Messiah's Galilean ministry, yes, but that Galilean ministry itself gives us a preview of the coming kingdom of God. In the earthly ministry of Jesus, we're given a taste, a sampling, a preview of the kingdom Jesus brings. That's extra special. That's something we want to see today. Christ's Galilean ministry on earth is over, but his kingdom is not. It's still growing, expanding, and coming. And we as Christians should be very eager to learn more about the kingdom of heaven. Starting next week, we're getting into the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus will have a lot to say about that kingdom and kingdom living. But for now, we're going to spend our time pouring over this preview. Let me show you here four dimensions of the messianic ministry of Jesus. What we see in this text, four dimensions of the messianic ministry of Jesus. And we'll see where they, they take us. The first is this, it's teaching. Teaching, verse 23, it just says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. The Sea of Galilee is a prominent backdrop to the ministry of Jesus now. There's several key cities dotted all around this lake, and Jesus will visit them often. They're just a short boat ride away from Capernaum, where he's made his new home base. But verse 23 here informs us that Christ's ministry is not going to be limited just to the Sea of Galilee, but the region of Galilee. Jesus, it says, was going throughout all Galilee. It's talking about the region, not just the lake. Galilee was a region, uh, a northern region in the land of Palestine. It was divided up into two parts. There's upper Galilee, which is filled with steep mountains and valleys. And then there's lower Galilee, which is rolling hills. It extends, the region extends from the Sea of Galilee all the way to the coast. It's about 40 miles wide. 70 miles long. Ancient historian Josephus claimed there's about 200 settlements in Galilee, each with at least 15,000 people. That puts the population of the region over 3 million. That's likely an exaggeration, but nonetheless, it was still a bustling region. It had come under Gentile influence early on. Even back in Isaiah's day, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. But the Jews, by this time, they had repopulated the area, but Gentile influence was still noticeable. This region would be the primary stage for the messianic mission of Jesus in his second year. Only later is he going to leave this region and travel to other places. But for now, verse 23 summarizes, he's going throughout Galilee. The verb going throughout, it's in the imperfect tense in the Greek. That's just the present tense applied to the past. And it still speaks of a repeated continuous action. The picture is that just day in, day out, Jesus and his disciples were just bouncing around from one town to the next in the region of Galilee. They're moving from one place to the next. At this stage in Christ's public ministry, he's always on the go. Later, he'll he'll escape just with his disciples. He'll avoid the crowds in his final year. But now, he's always on the go, seeing these these towns throughout Galilee. 
And what was he doing? As he's going from town to town, city to city, what's he doing? Well, first, he's teaching. Verse 23, he was teaching in their synagogues. Any settlement of any considerable size would have had a synagogue. And that's where Jesus knew he could find some Jews who were eager to listen. As he said later, he came first for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's just where he went. Regarding these synagogues, the word synagogue literally refers to a gathering of people. He later came to refer to the place of the gathering of these people. We don't fully know the origin of these synagogues because they're not found in the Old Testament, but many believe they started during the Babylonian exile. The temples destroyed, they're away from their land, but to find some way to connect, they, they formed these local synagogues, gatherings. But by the day of Jesus, synagogues had become a, ingrained in Jewish life, a, a massive part, <clears throat> part of Jewish daily life. Now, you probably think of these synagogues like, like a Jewish equivalent of a church, right? And today, they, they pretty much are. But back in the first century, they were not. The ancient synagogue was more of a community center than an exclusive place of worship. The synagogue in the first century and before was where the Jews gathered for school, for meals, for lodging, for courts, for punishment, for charity, for politics, Early synagogues weren't filled with religious icons. They were just kind of empty rooms with benches on the walls where there's a place to gather. Think community center first, place of worship second. That's because during this time, every Jew still thought of the temple as the place of worship. Like the place of worship is the temple. That's where you worship through sacrifice, through the priesthood, through offering. You go to the temple in Jerusalem. They're centralized place of worship. Now that all changed after AD 70 when the temple was destroyed and the Jews are scattered. That's when the synagogue becomes now much more this place of worship. It really takes over as the place of worship. Now this is not to say though that in Christ's day synagogues were not used for religious purposes. Every Sabbath they were. Every Sabbath they became a place of worship. The temple was far away for most Jews and so Every Sabbath, they would gather at their local synagogue for worship. They would read the Torah. They would sing. They would pray. And the New Testament tells us that visiting teachers or visiting rabbis would have a ready platform to address the people. It's almost like they had an open mic time where one could just get up, read the scriptures, and expound on them. And later in the New Testament, we find the Apostle Paul, who himself was a Jew, even a Pharisee. Now he's going around preaching Christ, and his strategy was just to first stop every new city, go to the synagogue on Sabbath, because he knew he could get an open mic, basically. They'll listen to me at least once before they run him out of town. For example, Acts 13, 14 says, But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And he went on to preach the gospel to them. And that's what Jesus is doing in this stage. He's moving from town to town, strategically going to the synagogues because that's where he knows he can teach, and many Jewish people 
will be there to listen. He knows there are going to be many there who were truly longing for the kingdom and its king. He would not always find a ready audience, but he knew this is a place he could teach. The light of the Messiah had dawned in Israel. And of all places, in Galilee, even Galilee of the Gentiles, as it said back in verse 16, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death. Upon them a light dawned. And every time Jesus stood up to teach, that light shined a little bit brighter. That light reached a few more people in the darkness. Jesus came to reveal the truth of God and the light of God, and he did so first through teaching. But not only teaching, there's also, secondly, preaching. The second dimension of his messianic ministry is preaching. Again, verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The word for proclaiming here is keruso, which is otherwise usually translated just preaching. And that's what preaching is. It's announcing, it's proclaiming, it's declaring. And the difference between teaching and preaching in the Bible is not just semantics. These are two different words. They're related activities, but different activities. They're often spoken of together, but not interchangeably. Like Acts 42 mentions, every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And they don't mean quite the same thing. I wonder if you know, what is actually the difference biblically between teaching and preaching? Really, the the Greek terms underlying these two activities help clarify the difference. To teach is didasko. It means to instruct. You're communicating truth from one to another. And this, this instruction, it's not aimed only at the mind, but it goes first to the mind. It is cognitive. It is truth first applied to the mind to fill and to guide the mind with truth. But to preach is this Greek word, keruso. And as we have here, it, it does not mean simply to instruct. Like we said, it means to announce, to declare something, just to proclaim it. It's less about explaining the truth and what it means and more about just saying it, declaring it to someone. Behind the word for preaching is an ancient herald, someone sent by the king, a representative of the king. He would go from town to town announcing an edict of the king. That was the ancient preacher. And if he had good news, this messenger would be called an evangelist, a bearer of good news. And Christians later just hijack that term because we've got better news. <laughs> but in a Christian context, it, this preaching is where people act as heralds for King Jesus, declaring his word and announcing the good news of his kingdom to all. And biblical preaching comes with both exhortation and warning. As the preaching of God's word enters the mind, it immediately places demands on your will. On your will. Because God's truth, which is the only truth, is being declared to you, it calls you to respond. You must respond. You you must repent and believe. And if you don't, be warned. It will convict. It will warn. 
But in short, preaching is proclaiming and announcing, while teaching is instructing and educating. But I will say that preaching today in the context of a local church should rightly include a little bit of both. We get this from the famous verse, 2 Timothy 4.2, which calls on the men of God to preach the word. Then it says, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and careful instruction. It's a word for teaching. Preaching involves teaching, great patience and instruction. The preacher is to announce the truth, but then also patiently instruct God's people on what it means, uh, on the nuances, the implications of the truth. Both are necessary. And as a quick side note, and I believe part of the problem churches face today is, is this, a lack of teaching and preaching together. You have a lot of preachers who are all style, but no substance. They desperately want to be popular influencers. But to get there, they've forsaken being careful theologians who can rightly divide the word of truth and just explain it to the people in a way they can understand. There are many preachers who are excellent at encouragement or exhortation. But thereafter, they they really prove unable and unwilling to explain the truth, to answer all the questions that come up, because God's word brings tons of questions that, that demand an answer, but many just can't explain the truth. It just keeps their people shallow in their understanding of the faith, and it breeds weaker Christians who are more susceptible to deception, because they've never been taught to wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in fact, in that same passage, 2 Timothy 4.2, What does Paul warn right after that? In verse 3, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure, the people, they won't endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Weak pulpits have always plagued the church from the first century to the 21st century. But We need both. We need teaching, preaching come together to declare and explain God's word. Jesus did both. He reached the mind and the heart. He declared truth and then he explained it. And really, Jesus was the greatest preacher ever in the truest sense of the word. Because a preacher is a herald, a messenger of the king. And Jesus was a herald, but he's also the king. He's he's heralding himself. He's actually the king of the kingdom. He's the king come down humble in human form, being like one of us, that he might announce to us the coming of not someone else's kingdom, of his kingdom personally. He came to show the way that others might be made right with God and enter in. And this is why in our text, we see Jesus proclaiming what? What's he proclaiming? It says the gospel of the kingdom. We've already seen this in preview form. Another preview back in chapter four, verse 17. It says from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom's near. How so? Well, it's near in the nearness of the king. The king of the kingdom was standing in their midst. Jesus was a prophet, but not merely a prophet. He's a herald, but not 
merely a herald. He's the actual king of this kingdom. He's standing right in front of them. He's declaring to them the nature of this kingdom and the way in, which, by the way, is through him, also through him. Like Jesus says later in Matthew 11, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus came as a herald with singular focus. You never see Jesus getting sidetracked, talking about economics or politics or current events. He's not sharing his favorite fishing spots or, you know, carpentry tips. He's always speaking of just one thing. It's the gospel of the kingdom. When he teaches, when he preaches, it always is going to tie to the gospel of the kingdom. He taught this. He preached this. That's not all. He also showed it. He put the good news of the kingdom on display. Still in preview form, but Jesus manifested the power that accompanies his kingdom. We find this in the third dimension of his messianic ministry, which is healing, teaching, preaching. Third, healing. Back to verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel we encounter the healing ministry of Jesus, but it won't be the last, as this was a prominent dimension of his messianic ministry on earth. Jesus came ultimately to meet the spiritual and eternal needs of his people, but not to the neglect of their physical and temporal needs. He shows true compassion on the sick and the suffering, those undergoing the the disastrous effects of the fall. And really, Jesus was the one, he's the only one who could actually do something about that. He had a greater power. He had the power of life itself. And that gave him total command over all sickness, all suffering, and even death. And Jesus put that power on display countless times, wiping out disease in a village while he was there. In fact, keep your finger in Matthew 4 and go just flip over to Mark chapter 1, where Mark's gospel gives us a great episode. Mark chapter 1, it shows Jesus healing hordes of people in Capernaum, this new little hometown. After teaching on Sabbath, In the synagogue, so what he does, he's teaching, he's preaching in the synagogue. After that, Jesus delivered a man who was demon-possessed. And news of that deliverance spread real quick, such that that same day, by evening, what happens? The same day in Capernaum, Mark 1, 32. It says, when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill And those who were demon-possessed and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. This type of thing would happen again and again from town to town. Notice in Mark, it says he healed those with various diseases. And likewise, our text back in Matthew 4 emphasizes the indiscriminate and complete nature of his healing. It says he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. No exceptions. Now we know there are some today who 
claim to be able to heal like Jesus and the apostles. But really, they can't. No one's walking into hospitals just clearing them out. Just clearing out a whole ward. You look at faith healers and their followers, and they're not actually healthier than the general population. You think that would be true. They all suffer from the same debilitating diseases. And you look at some of these faith healing revivals. Have you ever seen a quadriplegic person up on stage at a faith healing revival? No, and you never will because they're not allowed on stage. There's a documentary going behind the scenes showing those who were noticeably, obviously crippled, taken to a side room for the whole evening, never allowed on stage because it's so obviously clear, like they're not getting up and walking. This person's a quadriplegic. But Jesus, you see, he healed all. He actually healed all. Everyone got on stage. His healing ministry was total. It was complete. It was instantaneous. It was radical. It was undeniable. And it was indiscriminate. With nothing more than a word, he's giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. He restores withered hands. He makes the paralyzed walk. Even raises the dead. And Christ's healings were so obvious and so astonishing that even his enemies never denied them. We never see his enemies denying his miracles. All they can do is try and attribute his power to the devil. That's the best they can do. It was just so undeniable. But in contrast to the devil, Jesus came from God in genuine compassion to set free those ensnared by sin and the devil. Look at Mark 1. If you're still there, Mark 1 verse 40. After it says a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you're willing, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Verse 41, moved with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus did for that man what no one else would do, and that is touch him. You don't touch a leper. You're not supposed to touch a leper. But Jesus touched him, but his power was greater, and he was cleansed. And if you look right before this text in Mark 1, though, as stunning as Christ's healings were, it still wasn't the primary dimension of his ministry. We just read in Mark 1, verses 32 through 34, It says they brought to Jesus many who were sick. And he healed many of them. He could have kept going. There were still more sick people. But but look at this. Look at verse 35 of Mark 1. This is after that evening. It says, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. There were still plenty of sick people. He said, it's time to go. I got to go to the next town. I came to first preach. Interesting. You see, Jesus didn't just come to heal people. He did heal people out of genuine compassion, but the world over, he left a lot of people sick. That's because his first mission was to bear witness to the gospel of the kingdom. He came to preach. 
And his healings actually served a second layer of bearing witness to him. They were testifying of him. His miracles authenticated him as the Messiah, the one who brings the power of God. John 14, 11, Jesus said, believe in me that I am in the father and the father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. They testified of him. You should believe in him. That's how John ends his gospel. John 20, 30 through 31. He, he adds, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Every time Jesus healed, it displayed, really proved that he has power over sin, sickness, suffering, Satan, and death. Every time he healed, he gave people just a little taste, a little preview of the power that belongs to his kingdom. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4 now. And the next verse here shows us that Christ's kingdom power really is the answer to all manner of human suffering. Now to verse 24 of Matthew 4. It says, The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. You see how it says they brought to Jesus all who were ill. The word ill literally says those who had it badly. They had it bad. They're suffering from manifold diseases. But Matthew highlights three special categories here. It says first, demoniacs, those demon-possessed. We're going to see later in Matthew, not all, but some physical afflictions came as a result of demon possession. The New Testament connects some physical and mental illnesses in the Gospels to demon possession. See that later in Matthew. Second, there are epileptics. If you have an older translation, it might read lunatics. A lunatic today is a pejorative term, but back then it was just a description of someone displaying irrational behavior. And this word in the Greek is the word moonstruck. It's where the word moonstruck comes from. Because the ancient Greeks believed such people were under the influence of the moon. But this word later just came to refer to anyone undergoing a seizure or with some mental incapacity. Now, our knowledge of medicine today allows us to look back on the symptoms of people described by this condition and pinpoint a little bit more of what they were likely suffering from. And that's why you see the translation epileptics. A lot of these cases seem more akin to epilepsy, which is a nerval, uh, nervous system disorder leading to seizures. But then third, there's a third category. It's the paralytic. We don't really use the word paralytic anymore, but you can tell it refers to those who were paralyzed. You know, before wheelchairs, mobility of the paralyzed was extremely limited. The only way they could get around is if their friends carried them around in, in a cot, like a little makeshift bed. We actually see that several times in the Gospels. And most often, these paralyzed people were gathered by their friends and in the morning dropped off at the city gates or in Jerusalem by the temple and just left there all day to beg and then hopefully picked up at night. That's their life. But you see, with these three categories, you really get a summation of all the afflictions of man. Spiritual, mental, and physical. But what's the point here? 
that Jesus healed them all, right? Jesus healed them all. He had power over them all. You think of all human suffering, Jesus is the answer to it all. He came giving people a taste of his kingdom, banishing sickness from the earth for a while. But all those who would enter into his kingdom by believing in him would see the day when sin, sickness, suffering, Satan, and death are banished forever. And when you think about the healing ministry of Jesus, as we'll see more and more in Matthew, you just realize if anything like this truly happened today, you couldn't keep it quiet. This would be front page news everywhere, especially today in the era of cell phones. I mean, to see a limb regrown or a quadriplegic walk or someone born blind seeing, that news would spread like wildfire. And it did. In Christ's day, it did, albeit by word of mouth, but it spread fast. What he was doing could not go unnoticed. You don't heal a village and it doesn't go unnoticed. And this leads to one more dimension of his ministry. And that's number four, attracting. Attracting. We see in verse 24 how news about Jesus was spreading. It says, first, throughout all Syria. It's gone out of Galilee. It's already left Galilee. The news is spreading throughout Syria. Syria was the Roman province to the north of Galilee and contained some notable cities like Tyre, Sidon, Damascus, some of which Jesus will later visit. But many Jews had settled in these northern cities. They're well connected by roads running north to south, highway roads connecting north to south. And so these people from the north, they caught wind that this, this Jesus was healing people, their loved ones, their friends, their relatives, and they started just coming south. There's a, a, a train of people coming south to Jesus. But not just from the north, not just from Syria. Verse 25, it also says large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. You also got people coming from the south, That's Jerusalem and Judea. We're well acquainted with those places. And then people from the east, that's the Decapolis and those from beyond the Jordan. That just means the other side of the Jordan. Decapolis was a region east of Galilee. It means 10 cities. And it was filled with 10 cities. It was a Gentile-dominated land, but still many were coming to Jesus from there and from across the Jordan. And so you get the picture of all directions, Everywhere, people are hearing and they're streaming to him. He attracted crowds, we'll see later, of thousands and thousands of people. And to them all, he bore witness to the gospel of the kingdom. And this is how this text ends, but this is not the end. It's really just the beginning of Christ's widespread messianic ministry. This is just a preview. Like I said, though, at the beginning of our time together, What makes this little preview, I think, extra special is that in itself, this really gives us a preview of the kingdom of God. You know, we all long for the day when God's kingdom comes to earth, when his will is perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven, when when King Jesus reigns over all. And the fullness of that kingdom is still future, Yet we see in Christ's ministry a a taste of how things will be set in order in his kingdom. We see in his ministry a, a taste of how all things will be set in order in his kingdom. 
And this world today still is out of order. It is known by disorder, disarray, and rebellion. Jesus will one day fully restore God's order to this world. And the preview he gives of that in our text, I think, begs a little more reflection. So first, I want you to consider the main ways this world is still out of God's order. How's, how so? How is, how is this world out of order? What, what is wrong with this world? What would you say? And I would reason that most people, their initial, immediate, knee-jerk response would have something to do with suffering. Right? Sickness, illness, disaster, calamity, tragedy. Bad things still happen. 2,000 years after Christ, life is still filled with hurt and loss and suffering. Jesus encountered thousands of people suffering like this. And for various reasons, their lives were out of order, out of God's created order for humanity. This was not his initial design for humanity. This happened because of the fall. But what did Jesus do about that? When he encountered things out of order, he healed them. Right? You think of this, this man born blind, never once saw the light of day. What's that like? That's not right. But Jesus spoke a word and healed him. Think about a person plagued by leprosy, their body covered in sores, and then ostracized by a cruel society. That's not right. But Jesus touched him and made him clean. You think of the family who lost their precious child. There's no greater loss. But the Savior had the power to raise him from the dead. And similarly, in Christ's eternal kingdom, Revelation 21.4 says, there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's not the only aspect of this world that's out of order. I mean, how did things break in the first place? How did sin and rebellion against God, with all of its consequences, how did that start? How did that propagate? And the answer is lies. God is the source of all life-giving truth. But many go against him, spreading life-stealing falsehood. And that all started, as you know, with the father of lies, the devil. He's the one who introduced sin and suffering and death to this world in the first place. And so talk about out of order. As long as lies persist, falsehood against what God says is true, things will be out of order. Marriages will be out of order. Parent-child relationships will be out of order. As long as we buy lies and we do all the time, you see disorder in this world. But this is... One of the reasons Jesus came teaching and preaching. He set the record straight to speak truth against the lies. And no one could contend with his words. Lies are never any match for the truth. And it also says liars have no part in his kingdom. Falsehood will be banished from his kingdom. And all those who followed him and came under his word found the darkness cast out by his light. They found God's order restored with all the accompanying peace and joy and righteousness. But there's just one problem with this, namely that none of this lasted. Right? His messianic ministry on earth, none of it lasted. While Jesus was on earth, his light 
penetrated the darkness. But as soon as he left, what happened? All those people he healed, they all got sick again and eventually died. That's still not right. And all those people he taught, they all either forgot or they failed to live out perfectly what he said. Also not right. And as a result, their lives were still out of order to some degree. Man and creation still long for this lasting kingdom when sin and sickness, suffering, Satan and death are gone for good. We're still longing for that. And this is why, though, Jesus had to do more. If his ministry ended after this text, he came, he taught, he preached, he healed, drew a crowd, and then just ascended back to the Father. He could have done that, I guess, but his his kingdom would then be empty. His kingdom would be empty of all humanity. That's because all humanity was separated from God, spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. And unless Jesus, the Messiah, did something about that greater problem, our suffering would become eternal and our darkness would turn into outer darkness. And there's many people who, when they suffer in this life, they're prone to just shake their fist at God and say, not fair. It's not fair. When people do that, it it becomes very evident. You just don't know this God. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know this God. You want fair. Fair is your instant death and immediate sentence to perdition. That's fair, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And all all have sinned. You, me, none are righteous, not even one. No one deserves God's acceptance or anything good from him. We, and our sin, deserve his rejection and judgment. So if if you're going to cry fair to God, you're asking for your own judgment. Rather, every breath you're allowed to take in this life is his mercy to you in, in delaying that judgment. And scripture, though, gives us the reason for that mercy. Why does God let us persist in our sin and rebellion? Well, 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, says the Lord is not slow about his promise, speaking of the return of Christ. He's not slow about that promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You realize God could restore his kingdom reign anytime he wants. You get that, right? Anytime he wants, he could have restored his rule over this world. It's out of order. Any second, he could restore his order. Remember like when the angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob and it appeared like an even match? It wasn't an even match. He was just letting him play along until he wanted to. He could have overpowered him any second, but he didn't because he had a purpose. And so it goes for all that is wrong with this world. Sin, sickness, suffering, Satan, and death. They have thrown off God's order, God's rule over this creation. They've made things out of order. But do you think this poses some challenge to God? Like he's like, what do I do now? How am I going to fix this? How am I going to make this right? What do I do? He's not concerned in the sense like he can't do anything. And God is sovereign over all. And on day one after the fall, he could have immediately restored his kingdom if he wanted, if that were his plan. Or any day since, if that were his plan. But he has a plan. 
and involves some other things. And that involves a God who redeems, and he wanted his glory displayed and magnified by saving some of these rebels and populating a kingdom with the redeemed. And this is why Jesus, in his messianic ministry, had to do more. Now, our preview ends here, but if I can give you some, some bonus footage to the preview of the Messiah's ministry. He not only attracted people, he also repelled. Right Later, he's going to repel. It's because the darkness hates the light and does not want to come to the light for their deeds are evil. They want to put the light out, and eventually they succeeded. They, they killed Jesus. They put him to death, even death on a cross. But you and I know, I trust that this was no mere death. This was God's preordained substitute sacrifice that Jesus died to become our sin bearer. And so that all of our unrighteousness, which keeps us out of that kingdom, would be done away with, and we'd even be granted his righteousness that we might enter in. The Messiah came to atone. He died for that. And then he rose again. He says in Acts 2.24, it says, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. And he, he's a greater power. And the curse that attends sin is death and all that goes with it. But Jesus reversed that curse, becoming a curse for us, and now brings us life and all that goes with it, everlasting life. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God to you is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now Jesus is the only way into this kingdom. Like he says, John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You realize the reason for that, that he's the only way into the kingdom? You have to go by faith in him. You get the reason for that? The way to this kingdom, this place where all is right with God, with your creator, it is barred shut to all of us. No one's in. None may enter because none are righteous. Not even one. And so it would not be fair for God to let anyone in. You want fairness? It's not fair for God to let anyone in his kingdom. You're not righteous. He is. Now, fair is us being just judged. But because Jesus died in our place and forgiving us our sins and granting us his righteousness, the door is open. He is the door we may enter in. And when you do so by faith, it's still not fair, but it is grace. And that's God's prerogative, but this is his grace, his gift to the unworthy. And that's why we praise him. And you must receive this gift of grace by faith. John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus said, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You must believe this today. You can be saved and made right with God, even right now, by this genuine trust in him as your only way. And when you do so, you don't have to wait for the kingdom to start seeing your life come back in order. And Hebrews 6.5 mentions the powers of the age to come. The powers of the age to come. 
You know what that power is? In one word, it's resurrection. Resurrection power. Every time Jesus healed or worked wonders, he was putting that power, the powers of the age to come, he was putting it on display here, now in this age, in preview form. One day, that power will be unleashed in full. That's when all who trust him will be physically resurrected themselves to join him in an eternal kingdom. But you need to know that with his own resurrection, Jesus brought that power into our world right now. Fully, no. Partially, yes. But truly, truly brought the powers of the age to come to bear in this world now. You think about the kingdom of heaven, we'll think about it a lot in Matthew's gospel. Major theme is the kingdom here now or not. Is it present now or not? The answer is yes and no, or already and not yet, as some might say. And sometimes we hear Jesus and he says, the kingdom is present here in your midst. Other times he says, the kingdom will come when I come with my angels. Which is it? The answer is both. The fullness of his kingdom is still future when the king returns to rule and reign. But he has inaugurated the power of that kingdom now in this age. And understanding rightly the nature of Christ's kingdom power in this age keeps us today from living out of order. If I can say that again, understanding rightly the nature of Christ's kingdom power in this age keeps us from living out of order. For example, it'll keep you from a foolish optimism. A foolish optimism. Some might act, for example, or think that, you know, if, if I just pray hard enough, I will be healed every time. Right? I have the Spirit. We've been given the Spirit's power. If I, if I just pray hard enough, every time I will be healed. But, but wait, no, that, that's not true. You're acting as if this is the fullness of the kingdom. It's, it's not. We have kingdom power in the spirit, but not the fullness of it. The world is still fallen and cursed. Sin, Satan, and death still reign. Jesus is not going to utterly banish sickness and suffering and death until he returns. So, so don't get off balance. Don't, don't go too far with that. But there's a ditch on both sides of the road because understanding Christ's kingdom power in this age also keeps you from living with the crippling pessimism. A crippling pessimism. This is where some Christians think that, that we're powerless to see any good or any change in this world or this age. So just, you know, find a bunker, escape the culture, just hide out, and just wait for Jesus to come back. That's our best bet. You know, God doesn't heal anymore. He doesn't work wonders. We're just kind of hurrying up and waiting. And that's that. But this too is wrong because God is still at work. His resurrection power is at work in this age. I mean, you see that every time, for example, in the miracle of the new birth. So yes, pray fervently for the healing of your loved one. God still heals as he sees fit. And yes, you do all you can to reach the culture with the gospel. I'm not going to hide out. That's not our mission. You do everything he calls you to do, knowing his power is at work within you. But as Christians, here we are now living in the age before the end. We need to know God can still act and influence and change this world, yet we're still able to make sense of all the suffering that remains. 
of the things that are still out of order. Sin, sickness, Satan, suffering, and death haven't been eliminated yet. This is not the fullness of the kingdom, but we're not without hope or mission. God is at work, and he's already unleashed those powers here in this age in us through the Spirit. And so this understanding, which we get out of this preview of the kingdom, in the end, though, it does assure us that everything will be okay. For those in Christ, everything will be okay. Even if suffering comes our way, and it will, right? Make no mistake, suffering will come our way. But we know that this is a God who works through weakness and he brings glory on the other side. This is how he works in this age. And did not the Lord Jesus himself have to go through such a path? There wasn't there a cross before the crown? But God works through weakness. And this is now part of us following him. And the Apostle Paul understood this well. And this is why he said this, this was his greatest desire. He says in Philippians 3, 10, 11. He says that I may know him. His greatest desire, speaking of Christ, I, I just want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You know, knowing Jesus is everything. The longer you live here by faith, you realize that's true. Like, what, what else is there in life? Knowing Jesus really is the key to everything. It brings everything else around you in order. This world is still out of order. And every time that confronts you, and it will, you're going to be continually confronted by this world that's still out of order. Every time it does, you long for the power of his resurrection, and rightly so. But just remember that with that power comes the fellowship of his sufferings. He suffered first and we're called into a fellowship in this age only with his sufferings. Do you want to attain to the resurrection from the dead? First, you must be conformed to his death, it says. But we have not fear, or rather we have no fear, because Jesus has overcome. He wants you to live confidently in his resurrection power. Because while you're still here, he's, he's got a job for you to do. He wants you to work for him. And his resurrection power is what it takes for you to do that, to be conformed to his image. And he commissions us to carry on his work of what? Of preaching, of bearing witness to the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Now, just to finish, turn to Matthew 9. Just flip over if you're close. Matthew 9. Because after the Sermon on the Mount, after a few other passages, Matthew actually gives us a second type of summary statement. So we'll see this all again, but Matthew 9, 35 through 38. There's another summary. Matthew 9, 35. It says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness, still doing it. Look at verse 36. It says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus knew he wouldn't be there forever. He was going to ascend. 
So verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And if you're a disciple, this is now your calling. You are made to be such a worker, to go out into a lost world, broken world, a world that's out of order. But as a herald of the king, now to announce the way to his kingdom. It's not through you, it's through him while there's still time. You and I are not sufficient for this work. But he makes the power of his resurrection flow through us by his spirit. This gives us all we need to just go forth into the field. Be fishers of men. Proclaim Christ. That we might present every man complete in Christ. And then say along with Paul in Colossians 1, 29. Where he says, for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power which works mightily within me. And let's strive according to his resurrection power. Why don't you pray with me? Our God, that is our, our desire and our plea, and that you empower us to do what you've called us to do. We all know it all too well. None needs to be convinced. This world is still broken. It's fallen. It's in rebellion against your order. It's out of order. Sin reigns, Satan reigns, death reigns, and we see that hurt and suffering, even our own lives every day. Our day will come for all of us. We'll be afflicted by this world out of order. We thank you for this preview and the taste of the kingdom you've given us and the ministry of Christ. We see what it will be like fully when the king comes and returns and his kingdom is established once for all. That all these things will be put away. Death itself swallowed up in victory and we will be in order, under your perfect will forever. We do long for that day and pray you come quickly. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done now on earth as it is in heaven. Until then, Lord, you've called us as the church to be now us a type of preview of the kingdom. We're now the preview. We are the outpost of the kingdom because we aim to live our lives under your order. We don't do it perfectly. We, we thank you we're forgiven. Yet, Inspire us, Lord, to, to submit our lives to your order that we might show this world the peace and the joy and the, the resolve, the righteousness that comes when a life is brought under the order of Christ. It, it makes sense of everything. It gives joy to everything. Help us to witness and herald how life is meant to be under Christ. We need to do that now. We must not hide. This is our time always to reach the lost with the good news of the kingdom. Help us all to let that light shine. Be fishers of men to go out into the field and, and harvest by proclaiming the word. To work in us to that effect, may Christ's name be magnified through us. His name we pray. Amen.